Well, good morning. Somebody uh, asked me uh, how I would describe myself if I uh, had to choose a, a metaphor to illustrate kind of who I am, and I said, well... I kind of feel sometimes like a bad penny. I just keep coming back, you know. Uh, but it's good to see you this morning, and I have looked forward to this from the standpoint of, uh, you know, just being able to be with you again and share from God's Word. I think that um, one of the things that strikes me about just living life is that it doesn't always go the way that I planned it to go. And I don't know if this is anything that afflicts you in kind of the same way, but I I think it's certainly one of the things that I've noticed. And certainly there are those things that uh, happen to us in the course of just being human that, that are difficult to deal with sometimes. I mean, the challenges can be little, or the challenges can be medium, or the challenges can be huge. And sometimes I talk to folks, and I seriously do not understand how they manage to keep their sanity with all of the things that they encounter. But I particularly don't understand how people can get by without knowing God, without knowing the love of Jesus and without having that as a resource to constantly draw on when things get bad. But I think this morning what I want to do to talk about this in a little bit more detail is take a look at a character that as soon as I tell you who the character is, I mean this is a very famous person in scripture. He shows up pretty much either directly or indirectly from the beginning of the book to the end. But I want to just issue a little bit of a caution this morning before we talk about this um, character. One of the things that I've learned about characters in Scripture is that um, we have to be careful with characters. And one of the reasons we have to be careful with characters is that if we look at who they are, what they did, what they didn't do, how they lived how they dealt with things, and so on and so forth, we sometimes get into a little bit of trouble because these characters have something in common with us, and that is that they are humans. With the exception of Christ himself in, in the pages of Scripture, every character you encounter has those things that we know all too well go along with being human. They have their shortcomings, they have their issues, they have their things that they do well, and their things that they certainly don't do well. So whenever we look at characters, if we focus only on characters, we can only take the lessons that we learn, and we can only teach, and we can only preach, and we can only learn as far as the characters in their humanness let us go. And so the point of characters in Scripture is not about the characters, but the point of characters is what can we learn from them about God, who God is, what is God's personality, what are God's characteristics, his attributes, his attitudes, his intentions, his plans. 
Certainly, these things are, are much more important. And so behind any character study, there always has to be that bottom line, that question, what does this teach us about God? Now, the person I want to kind of talk with you about a little bit this morning is David. Now, there's a familiar name, David. Very well known in Scripture, a lot of Scripture about him, especially, of course, in the Old Testament. He was a son of Jesse. He was a brother, a shepherd, a poet. He was a musician. He was a prophet. He was a warrior. Ultimately, of course, he became husband, father, and king. He's referred to in 2 Samuel 23.1 as the sweet psalmist of Israel. In 1 Samuel 13.14, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. And even the author of the book of Acts uh, in Acts 13.22 cites an instance where David again is referred to as a man after God's own heart. It's said in the pages of the Old Testament that David had slain his ten thousands. And if you'll recall, as a warrior, that was a, a, a thing that was said of him after he had killed Goliath. And it was one of those things that had upset the reigning king at that time, King Saul, because as they were singing that David had slain his ten thousands, they were saying of Saul that he had slain only his thousands. Which kind of, I guess, brings us to the context of what is going on in the life of David relative to the passage of Scripture that I want us to take a look at this morning. You know, after David had killed Goliath and, and he had uh, been in Saul's service uh, for a while, Saul gets to where he becomes pretty suspicious of David. Because Saul had been disobedient to God, Samuel has confronted Saul about this, and Saul knew that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him, and he had an inkling, a growing sense, that it was going to be David who was going to be king. And so Saul was jealous of David, to say the least. David had been on the run, as a matter of fact. And on a couple of occasions, by the time we get to our passage this morning, David had even had the opportunity to kill King Saul. But David would not do that because Saul was, after all, the anointed king that for however long God wanted him to be king, David was not to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so in the process of getting away from Saul, because Saul, even though he had given David some assurances that, you know, he wasn't going to come after David anymore, David in the back of his mind is going, yeah, I know how long that's going to last, or rather, I don't know how long that's going to last. So what David does is he escapes and he goes to the king of Philistia. 
king by the name of Achish. Now, some people feel that's not a name of this person, but that that's a, a throne name. You know, like all the Caesars were called Caesars, etc. But one way or another, we'll just, for the sake of the discussion, refer to this king in Philistia as Achish this morning. And what David does is he enters the service of this Philistine king. Now, the Philistines, or the Philistines, my daughter gave me trouble last time I used that word in a sermon about how you actually pronounce it, so I'm going to pronounce it lots of different ways this morning just to give them all equal time. What he did is he convinced the king that he was trustworthy, and the king gave him a town to live in. And this town was called Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G. And David had his men with him. There were about 600 men and their families who had gravitated to David. And David is in this town, and here is what they would do. They would set out from this town, and they would go to places in the uh, territories where the people were enemies of Israel, and they would raid a town... They would wipe it out. They would put everybody to the sword so there were no witnesses. And then they would take all of the loot that they would get back to Ziklag. Now at this point, the king, Achish, would say to David, Well, where did you raid today? Where did you go today? And David would say, Well, I went here, I went there. And he'd name some place that uh, was in Israelite territory. So he tried to make the king think, that he was actually going and raiding and doing all this plundering in his own land. Whereupon the king is thinking, well, okay, this shows David's loyalty to me because all of this stuff that he's doing certainly would would make him an enemy of King Saul and of the people over in Israel. He didn't know that David was actually not doing that. And so the time comes for the Philistines to actually go to war against Israel. And so what happens is David and his men go ahead and they tell the king, well, you know, now you're going to see what we can do. Because we're going to go with the armies of Philistia and we're going to fight against the Israelites. Well, as the parade is going by of all the soldiers that are heading to this battle, all the generals from the Philistine army are referring now their concerns to the king. And they're saying, excuse me, king, he's not going with us. What better way for him to get back in the good graces of his master Saul than to go into battle with us and then he and his men could turn on us, do us great harm, and lo and behold then, we would be in big trouble. And after all, king, isn't this the guy that they used to sing about, that he's slain his ten thousands? No, he's not going with us. Send him home. So the king says to David, look, I trust you. But the generals and all the other leaders don't, and so I'm going to have to ask you and your men to go home. They have a little discussion. And so then what happens is David and his men go home. So that brings us to where I want to point to Scripture this morning. And we're going to look to start with at the last verse 
of chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. In the last verse, all this stuff that I just described to you has occurred, and so here is what it says. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So they go on to the battle. David and his men go home. And if we continue now in chapter 30, here's what we read. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now think about this circumstance. Think about what would be your reaction if you came home and your house is burned down, your family is gone, you don't know where any of your people are, and what's more, it looks as if this was done with evil intent And so they may have been carried off, or there may be terrible things that are continuing to happen. This was a big shock to these guys coming back from thinking they were going to go to battle. Now they come home and find everything gone. They were so distressed that they were even talking about stoning David, their leader, to death. And that's when it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I find it, first of all, interesting in this episode with David that what he did, rather than mount a uh, war party to go get everything back, rather than arguing with people with regard to saying, look, it's not my fault this happened, um, he immediately turned to God. Now just that tells us something about the character of this person, David, a man after God's own heart. But what I find interesting is what happens next, because chapter 30, the rest of chapter 30, tells us what David did. And what I find interesting about the things that David did is that they seem to spin off of him having strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You see, the the thing is that he goes to God first, but then it's what happens after that that I think is instructive in terms of not only showing us who David was, but ultimately who God is. 
In verse 7 we see, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? God answers, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So the first thing we see here is that not only did David strengthen himself in the Lord as God and focus on God, but he seeks guidance immediately. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of instructive here. David did not begin immediately to make his own plans. He talked to God about what shall I do? Most of us live in a, a, a mode where we react, okay? And we react to whatever we think the circumstances seem to require of us. Sometimes we act rashly. Sometimes we act badly. Sometimes we, we do the right things. And I think sometimes, at least looking at myself, sometimes that's an accident when I do the right thing. But David sought guidance he didn't start making his own plans. And so in the process of seeking guidance from God, God gives him an answer. Now here's the thing. Many times in Scripture, in particular in the Old Testament, we see people asking for guidance from God. And then they turn around immediately, just like we do, and don't do what God says to do. But in this particular case, if we look down a little farther, we see that David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 of the men and 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. You see, David went ahead and he obeyed God's directive. Only after he knew what God's directive was. So again, David is following what God wants him to do at this point. He's not just doing his own thing. And in verses 9 and 10 that we just looked at, what David does is he then selects the right people to help him go on from the brook where they stopped. See, on the one hand, you could be looking at the fact that, okay, here I am, I'm David, I got my 600 guys with me, and we're, we're going, we're, we're going to catch these guys. But at a point, it was clear that about a third of the people who were with David were in no condition to continue. They were tired. They had just been out getting ready to go to war with the Philistines. That didn't work out. So they had just gone all the way back to Ziklag, found what they found. Now they've taken off to go try and catch the people who had taken everything. They're tired. They can't continue. So what David does is he says, all right, you guys stay here. You watch the stuff. And these other 400 and I will pursue the enemy. So here's another thing that David does. He not only obeys God's directive but he also chooses the right people to help him. Now, I don't know in what was in God's mind at this point about 
the 200 who stayed with the baggage and the two, the 400 who went on with David. But David stopped to have the discretion to see who to take with him. And then something very unusual happens. In fact, if anything, it's a little strange. I heard a sermon many years ago that said, nothing just happens. You know, there's always a reason why things happen. God has a plan, and sometimes if we're sensitive to those plans that he has for us, we take the things that just seem to be in our way, and sometimes by paying attention to them, we pick up on maybe a a special thing that God has for us. David, in the process of pursuing the enemy, finds an Egyptian, and uh, he's not in good shape. In fact, he's ill, he's weak, he's been left for dead. Now, at the point where David and his men are in hot pursuit of these folks that have carried off their families, they stop, give this guy water, give this guy food, give him some other stuff to eat. And when he kind of was feeling better, we go on and we see that David says to him, well, who are you? Who do you belong to? What people are you from? Who, who are you with? And so it's instructive that in the midst of doing what David has been told that he needs to do, just like we sometimes feel that we're doing what we get told to do, David doesn't miss an opportunity to stop and do right by somebody. How many times have I, I wonder, actually gone by somebody who needed my help or my assistance because I had my eyes on where I was headed? A meeting, dinner, home, vacation, whatever. But how many times, I wonder, have I missed someone that God put in my way because I was on a great endeavor? I was on a great uh, mission. I had another plan and on top of everything else I thought I was doing what God wanted me to do but David apparently didn't have that difficulty because he stops he helps this guy and then he finds out that this guy had been indeed with the raiding party that they were after now what's interesting about this is that David kind of works it out with this Egyptian slave who had been with the Amalekites. And he says, can you show us uh, where they've gone? After getting some assurances from David that David's not going to do him in either, then uh, the, the Egyptian says, well, sure, takes them right to where they need to be. And so in the process of getting there, by virtue of stopping to be kind to someone and do the right thing, David finds that this pays off because nothing just happens. And it's in this point at, at, in the text, at verse 16, we see that now David and his men engage the enemy. And they engage the enemy big time. And it says, starting in verse 16, And when he, that's the slave, had taken him down, behold, they were spread out abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they'd taken. These people are having a party. 
And in the process of having a party, David kind of comes on them by surprise. The battle ensues, and to make a long story short, they get everything that was taken back. They get all of their wives and children back unharmed. We see in verse 17b that they actually even annihilated the enemy except for 400 of them who mounted camels and fled. It's interesting to note in the text that um, David and uh, his men fought with these guys for a long time and 400 of them got away. Now, do you remember how many men David had with him? 400. So basically, David had now, with God's help, even come up against a force that had him outnumbered. And they had the advantage in terms at least of numbers, but David wins the day with God's help. These other 400 flee, and in the end, he gets all the spoil that they'd been taking from everybody else as well. He winds up with more to go back home with than they had lost in the first place. How many times have you gone through a crisis only to find out that you come out of it better than when you went into it? Come out of it with advantages, blessings perhaps, that you would not have foreseen. I know someone who a number of years ago, when that tornado went through Washington, lost everything that they had worked for for years in about eight seconds. And when I spoke to her about, you know, the loss of home and the whole business, her response was, well, you know, there were a few things I wanted to fix about that house anyway. And when we rebuild it, I guess we'll make sure that those things get fixed and I get more of what I wanted. And now the house is actually rebuilt, and sure enough, she got more of what she wanted. But the point I guess I'm making here is that David engaged the enemy. Well, of course, David had engaged the enemy before. Goliath was bigger than him. So you see, David had a little bit of a track record David had a little bit of experience with God to know that God sometimes, uh, in David's experience, had really taught him great lessons. So they win the day, and they start to go home. This is when it gets really interesting, because when they get back, or as they're going back, we see starting in verse 21... When they get back to the 200 guys that had stayed with the stuff, David wants to divide everything up equally with them. And the 400 guys who are with him kind of say, no, that is not what you're going to do. They, 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 uh, they sat on their hands back here. We're the ones that went and did the work. Give them their families, but the rest of it we'll take. And David said, no, that's not what we're going to do. In fact, from here on in, we're even going to make it a rule that... What we do is we divide the spoils equally with even the people that stay behind with the equipment. And so here, David, coming off a big win, stops to even take issue with all of his men who were with him. 
and he's assertive with them, and he's fair. He stands up to them. Something which, unfortunately, we see in David's later life, he didn't always do quite so well. And so he shared with the people who had stayed with the baggage, and as we finish the chapter going out to the end, we see that even when David got back to Ziklag, he sent gifts to friends of his and his family back over in Judah and so forth. And we see that he sent them presents, which was a wise thing to do. So David not only was generous with his own men, but he was generous with other people who would ultimately be his supporters. And so he was wise in that regard. So what David did is he sought God's guidance first, and then only after he got God's guidance did he follow through But that did not mean that he ignored all of the other things that he was going to have to deal with in the process. That's the hard part about all of this. If we just have one crisis and that's all we ever have to deal with, then okay. But life goes on. And about the time we think we have a handle on one thing or we're in the process of putting all of our attention on a problem, lo and behold, four other things happen. I mean, I know some of you have been there. It's like around our house, it usually is with stuff that breaks, okay? So the washer goes bust. And I immediately start thinking, okay, what's next? I don't think... My wife likes this very much when I do this, but, you know, every now and then, I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or whatever, but then the water heater goes out. And then, you know, somebody digs in my yard and messes up the drainage system. And so on and so on and so on. So what David did here is he shows us, he showed us that when he is even following God's directives, he continues to do the things that make for being someone of integrity. He stops to help someone. He's fair. He's generous. He gives gifts. He continues to deal with people in a wise way. So... Let's stop with this David thing, and let's talk about God. What does this teach us about God? Because that's where we started. Characters only take us so far as their humanness will let us go. So what do we see in David's behavior that lets us learn about God? Well, first of all, we see, back in verse 6, God is available And everything that goes on with God being available to us is kind of summed up in this this short section of the text. And And as he is available, he's also someone who answers prayer. When David sought God's guidance, he got an answer. We also see that God expected David to obey you know, David has, I'm sure, learned many things at, in his association with Samuel. And what's one of the things that Samuel had said, even when he was in the process of reprimanding King Saul once upon a time? He said, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
David, I'm sure, had many teachers who let him know that God expects obedience. And so what does David do when he gets his marching orders? He obeys God because that's who God is. God also provides. We see in verses 9 and 10 that he meets needs. But then in verses 11 through 15, we also see that God gives us opportunities even when we are not expecting them. I know a lot of times I'll look at situations and say, well, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. This, I just don't see any way. I cannot count the times that God has surprised me with stuff that I would have never ever prayed for. Because in my own humanness, I would have anticipated that, well, that's a very specific prayer. You know, (laughs) that's one that, you know, I I think I'll just pray for the Lord's will instead. I'm not going to be very specific. Well, don't get me wrong. It's a great idea to pray for the Lord's will, but sometimes I think we hedge a little bit when we don't take what we perceive we need to God. In the Psalms, it says that God is a God who daily bears our burdens. And there is nothing too big, there's nothing too small, there's nothing too insignificant. And so one of the things that we see here is that God gives us opportunities even when we're not expecting them. We also see that God is someone with immense strength and he can give us that opportunity to draw on his strength. He is immensely wise, and he can help us draw on his wisdom and his understanding. He rewards our faithfulness. In fact, God is always working, and he never sleeps. See, this God was greatly available to David in the worst of circumstances, but there's another thing here. Let's talk about David from the standpoint of where we've been up until this point. All those things that I read to you earlier. Son, brother, shepherd, poet, musician, prophet, warrior, husband, father, king. David's life, if you know the rest of the life of David, took an interesting turn. Uh, Adulterer. Murderer. Someone who let one of his sons get away with rape. Let another one of his sons get away with murder. Two of his sons committed treason in terms of trying to take the throne away from their father, the king. So does it not count when David's life starts kind of taking other turns? Does God just say, well, I'm through with you? You see, David was still someone who was a man after God's own heart. And what we see in Psalm 51, which is a a penitential psalm, after this whole incident in which David had committed adultery and murder, we see that David says, you know, uh, some things throughout that psalm that let us see that he's repenting and he is strengthening himself in the Lord his God. Back in that whole Ziklag thing, you see, David wasn't the one that made that whole problem happen. That was stuff that was done to him. 
But here, with all this other stuff, this is stuff that David did make happen. And yet he comes to God, he's able to repent, and God did not stop loving David, and God would accept David's repentance and his forgiveness was David's. Now the interesting thing (laughs) is that sometimes we sort of uh, look at the things we've done And everybody in this room probably has the things that we'll admit to and then the things that are closer and closer and closer that only a few people know about and that maybe even only God knows about. And when we come down to what it is that God wants from us and what do we learn about God from this example of David is that David is our example that points us to who God is and what he does. And one of the things that God is is apparently someone who can forgive us just about anything. In fact, let's remove the just about. Anything. And so we don't have a leg to stand on if we disqualify ourselves from taking advantage of God's grace by thinking that we're too bad for God to love or that we're too bad for God to forgive. You see, God is a God who is not only available to us, but he provides for us, gives us strength and wisdom. He blesses us, forgives us. He can create in us a clean heart. He can renew a right spirit in us. He can restore to us the joy of our salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. We were talking the other night and I was mentioning in a meeting we were in that in another translation of that passage of Psalm uh, 51.12 in the New Living Translation, it actually says, and make me, God, willing to obey you. There's a big one. God, I'm human. I want to do this my way. I really want to go after these guys now. And when I get them, not only do I want to do them in, but basically I want to enjoy it, Lord. And yet the thing is, in spite of myself, make me willing to obey you. Help me to do this your way. So if you're a believer this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the fact is you have already come into being a member of the family whose God is this God who is available and loving and forgiving no matter what you've done and no matter what you will do. Some people have trouble with that. In fact, I I heard a preacher on the radio the other day, however, say it this way. When Christ died for our sins, it had to be that he was going to pay for the things that we would do in the future because you and I weren't around yet. We didn't even exist. 
So when I stop and think about the fact that Christ died for my sins, I also have to deal with the fact that Christ died for the sins I haven't even committed yet, because that's the way it had to be. We know that this God who David strengthened himself in is our God. But a bigger question this morning is... Is there any chance that there's someone this, in this service who doesn't know this God? And I, I see people who have said to me before, look, well, you know, God can't possibly love me because he doesn't know, or maybe he does know, what I've done. So... Forgiveness is available. And even in David's later years, when some of the things that he did did not honor God in the least little bit, David could always strengthen himself in the Lord his God. And that's what we have this morning. We have an all-powerful, loving God who not only is available to us, but loves us and forgives us. When we as believers break faith with that, we can always confess what we've done and come back and restore that fellowship. But in order to have that kind of relationship with God, you know, there is something that needs to be done. And so I would simply say for those of you who may not know this God in quite that way, at the end of the service, perhaps you could talk with me, talk with Pastor Chris, talk with uh, some of the folks who... We're in the praise team this morning and just maybe meet this God in a new way for the first time this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious, available God. You never sleep. You never give up on us. But help us to bring our humanness uh, into focus this morning and just praise you, Lord, for the fact that Again, as Pastor Chris said this morning, you didn't need us, but you wanted us. You wanted us to be here so that we could love you and so that you could be glorified for what you've done for us and with us. Lord, we just pray this morning that you would help us to know you better. If we've fallen away from you, Lord, bring us back. For those who may not know you as they need to, Father, I just pray that they would take the opportunity to know you. But we thank you for bringing us to this place this morning. We thank you for these things that you've given us in Scripture. And we just scratch the surface about knowing what there is to know about you. Lord, we just praise you for your blessings. We look forward to that day when we will know you perfectly. But we pray that you would be with us this morning as we leave here. Help us to think on you in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a beautiful day. And I suggest that if someone in your house is the designated lawn mower, that you give them a break and go mow the lawn yourself. And I'll see you next week.